the void is boundless, but what we try to fill it with still matters. Fill it with cheap things, and you get a cheap void. Fill it with genuine projects of worth, and all will come to embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning. It's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense, and eventually you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Friends, episode 171 of Embrace the Void, where the light at the end of the tunnel is hopefully not just the next burning room. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're continuing our conspiracy theme with the addition of some cheap talk. So, let's make some mouth noises. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My returning guest this week is C.T. Nayen, professor of philosophy at the University of Utah, who is making an impressive career talking about gaming and pornography, which is really just living the dream. Um, (laughs) C.T., would you like to say hi to the void once again? Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for coming back on. I'm really excited. I love all of your work. I think it's really great, not just the gamification and porn stuff. And I wanted to expand upon our previous discussion about various kinds of pornography, especially civility porn, um, and how yeah. it relates to this idea of, of cheap talk that I was talking about on Twitter and you and I had a nice back and forth about a thread around that. So I want to you know, because you and I are just a bunch of analytic philosophers here. I want to get real analytical, and I want to define a bunch of terms here at the beginning. Let's get um, it. Let's, let's do get it. Analytical. Right. <laughs> right. So, for, um, first of all, can you define I mean, you need, for folks? You need, you need a. You need a yeah. let's get analytical theme song. Like, oh. press the button, and we get a little like do 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 do. Let's get analytical. I mean, Lou really likes adding in sound effects, so she'll probably find something for that. I imagine. Get some entrance music there. Yeah, do you want to define for folks what you mean when you use the word porn in your philosophy? Because I think that'll be important here. Yeah. Yes. So, for viewers that didn't tune in last time or can't remember, uh, listeners, this comes from a paper that Becca Williams and I wrote together that actually started as a drunk online chat on someone else's Facebook thread, where we were talking about the definition of, like, Mm -hmm. porn in the generic sense, like, food porn, ruin porn, poverty porn. And she and I started working on it. And what we came up with is, so Michael Ray, she pointed out that Michael Ray has this definition Mm -hmm. of traditional sexual pornography, which is basically trying to get instant gratification from images of sex while avoiding intimacy or relationships. And I think the basic idea there is he was really interested in the fact that a couple could exchange like nude photos and that's not porn, Mm -hmm. right? Because for him, that's part of a relationship. So porn is like somehow skipping out on that. So we defined X porn for any X as um, 
representations of X used for immediate gratification while avoiding the costs and consequences of actually dealing with X itself. So food porn, you like get pleasure um, by looking at pictures of food without having to find it or mm -hmm. prepare it or pay for it or like actually deal with the nutritional consequences or even worry about the nutritional consequences. So the whole point of this for us, well, not the whole point, but the big payoff for people that care about the world mm -hmm. instead of just definitions is that at the end we were like, okay, this will help us notice new forms of porn like moral outrage mm -hmm. porn, which is – Expressions of moral outrage used for immediate gratification while avoiding actual moral engagement. So for us, that's either one of avoiding, avoiding moral action or avoiding moral nuance. Those are like the costs of real and moral mm -hmm. engagement that you can avoid. And the last time we talked, you asked me a question that actually made it into the final draft of the paper and I think is crucial. You said like, can there be civility porn or sobriety porn? And I was like, absolutely. Like the idea that moral outrage porn is just something that people on the far left or the far right do is like mm -hmm. ridiculous, right? Any moral expression that could give pleasure could be pornified and the expression of like smugness at your own like I'm the civil person here engaged <laughs> in civil discourse, not one of like being part of that world and like – exchanging knowing harumphs about like how much better that you are mm -hmm. than all the people that are angry that can be pornified just yeah absolutely and i think else. we see this a lot around and i'm really i'm glad that uh, etv has made it into the annals of philosophy history via that footnote but it's it's interesting you know when you start to look through this lens you see so much of this porn like in every part of the world and it, what what's going on there it just occurs to me is that like Part of the goal of capitalism, broadly speaking, is to pornify everything, right? To give you, as a consumer, an access point for the pleasurable dopamine hits that you will get from consuming some product at minimal risk, right? Whether it's a roller coaster ride or, you know, getting to hunt the most dangerous game or something like that, right? Like, capitalism is there for you to pornify this. I'm not I, – I see – that this is something that comes out of capitalism. I'm not sure capitalism no, sure. is the only way in. We can we can talk about that later. I've I, I've been having like weird thoughts about the nature of institutions in general. But I mean, we're going to talk about this more. I think this is going to connect up with mm -hmm. a lot of the other stuff you want to talk about. But there's always this thing where like I'm still trying to look for a good general description of this. But like there's an activity mm -hmm. and there's a purpose, and then there's a way you can tweak the activity to make it just a little more pleasurable mm -hmm. or a little more easy. And you should expect people that are just trying to sell you shit to mm -hmm. be interested in the second thing. Yeah, it's sort right? of like what um, the term I think uh, Nick Bostrom uses when he talks about AIs tricking, like fi fixing their own system so that they can get the pleasure without having to do the work. He calls it wireheading. So it's like wireheading human yeah. beings to, yep. yeah, making, making the system. And it's tricky because... There is a pleasure from the feeling of challenge, and so you as a gaming person will know that you have to, like, right. you can't make it too easy for them while they get bored. So it's just, it's running those edges yep. that way. So let's talk about yeah. how this connects to this idea of cheap talk um, that I was talking about online, which I feel like is been such a problem, you know, forever on the internet, but like we're seeing a lot of it around the election in particular. And that was where I was going when I was talking about this. So I define cheap talk as talk. 
is, is a very, very much a kind of porn, right? A talk where specifically the person talking is at low risk of experiencing any repercussions for their actions. And you right. picked up on this idea and you connected it to something you've been working on, which you call question spamming. Do you want to explain sort of question spamming right. and how you see it related to cheap talk? Yeah, we should also go back because I don't see the cheap talk mm -hmm. porn connection as clearly you do. You do, okay. so we should go back to that for uh, in a moment. But so the thing I was thinking about spamming is so there are a few senses of so there are a few natural uses of the term spam, right? So we talk about email spam, and what we mean there is that like it's spam because it's basically costless mm -hmm. for someone to send you emails. So you know, think about the email spammer. They send out if there's no cost of sending out an email spam and their mailing list can be like infinitely large, even if one out of 300,000 people buys a product based on the email spam, mm -hmm. that's still worth it for them, right? Because the, the spamming action was cost-free. So they have no reason if their goal is just narrowly to make mm -hmm. sales, right, to not spam. And I think this shows up in gaming, and this is where I really picked up on it. Like there's, there's a kind of move in gaming called spamming which is really related and i think that's just when you mm -hmm. take an action that's cheap um but the response from the opponent is mm -hmm. really costly so i think like for me this showed up in the old like playing the old like starcraft mm -hmm. and warcraft games like i would i so i of course maybe this will be interesting to you i was really vulnerable to spamming because i would always want to build this like super complex uh, uh. perfect like system that would like finally output the big beast and good players who would take me to town would be like no while you're doing this i can just send this steady stream of cheap troops it's an easy move it's a cheap mm -hmm. move it's not an interesting move but if you can't but if you're if the setup you're building i can build a cheap troop for you know like two resources and it costs you three or four resources to build the response to it, then mm -hmm. you're going to lose. I just have to spam, right? So I was thinking about that. And that your discussion of cheap talk connected to me to this whole discourse that's going on um, about like, I mean, sea mm -hmm. lining. I was going to ask if you learned that term and <laughs> the I'm so tired. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the thing I'm thinking of is, so you'll get these cases where like somebody – Often it'll be like a woman or a person of color will say something about their position and then they'll mm -hmm. get hit by a ton of questions and the response will often be like, I'm too tired to answer these questions. I don't have time to educate you. And the response from the questioners is often like, but you're not participating mm -hmm. in civil discourse, right? In civil discourse, we ask questions and respond to them. And I always think like, okay, I understand that civil discourse has certain values i don't think it's like unlimitedly important but i'm like the way you're putting this is kind of disingenuous and reading your discussion of cheap talk made me think of the following thing that right now what the people who are like oh civil discourse from from are presuming is that the discourse discourse norms are set up like this that you're allowed mm -hmm. to ask any question without worrying about without doing research or think if it's a good question but any question that's put out there incurs the obligation to be replied mm -hmm. to thoughtfully and carefully. And if you set up those norms and if you get people to accept those norms, then question spamming is just like an mm -hmm. obvious strategy, right? If it takes you no energy to ask your question and it takes the other side enormous amounts of time and energy to answer each question, any of those discourse norms, then mm -hmm. if you want to win, 
what you should do is question spam your opponent. Yeah, and it was funny because somebody jumped on that thread and was like, oh, by the way, here's a link to troll sites that have quantified, like, you know, in detail how much a particular question is likely to, like, you know, take away someone's time versus being able to, like, readily answer it. So, like, yeah, I think there's lots of people who are keenly aware um, of this strategy now to be you know to try to do our best to uh, civilly steel man the people who are sort of asking the questions the argument I see most often is is sort of it, it, it has grown out of the skeptic um, you know Hitchens kind of world of you know if you're going to make a claim you have to be willing to defend that claim so if you're going to step onto the internet and you're going to say right. X is true then you have accepted already right. your obligation to defend that claim and if you're not willing to do that you shouldn't make the claim on the right. internet which as you were saying in, in your world which I think is the world we live in where that then follows to a bunch of question spam you've effectively just excluded a bunch of people from the internet yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so. I mean, that view that you're attributing to the skeptic view that has built in this weird mm-hmm. gameable discourse norm, right? Like, and I mean, in particular, so in the background, one of the things I've been thinking about is the degrees to which certain people's lives are easier mm-hmm. and harder to explain. So, um, so here's. So here's a way to put it. Um, so uh, there are a bunch of people in feminist epistemology and social epistemology talking about this notion of hermeneutic gaps and hermeneutic injustice. And one way to put it is certain ex- some group of people – so let's say some group mm-hmm. of people has more social power. When they describe the world and create the language, their experience will be really easy to describe because they've made the language. For people that didn't get to make the language, their experience is going to be incredibly hard to describe. So Miranda Fricker in this book that everyone reads in philosophy now spends a lot of time doing this case study of the notion of sexual harassment. And one of the things about that notion is before we had it, people who had this experience – had an incredibly hard time explaining it or even thinking about it because we just didn't have the terminology and the stories about it. And the reason, people say, is because, you know, most of the language and most of the stories were made by men. Another way to put this is, uh, something I've said is, uh, in America, no one has an easier time explaining their emotional experience than moderately well-off neurotic New York Mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. Because... There are so many stories and so much art that's devoted to exploring the experience. You can be like, oh, my experience is exactly like that moment in that Woody Allen movie or blah, 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 blah. And people know, mm-hmm. right? Because there's mm-hmm. so much stuff out there. So, I mean, to trace this back, the whole worry here is that if certain experiences are easier to explain and certain experiences are harder to explain, I can't help sometimes it just notice that like the whole like, Dawkins, Hitchens, that whole like the the leading lights in it are all mm-hmm. a certain kind of white dude, and their experience has probably been seems to be one where their justifications come readily to language. Right? It's really easy mm-hmm. to provide justifications. So if it's easy to provide justifications, then it's it, there's low cost of defending the discourse norms that you have to give norms that you have to give mm-hmm. justifications for everything. But if you have if you have justifications that are much harder to give or more elaborate to give or acquire 
um, a much more thorough elaboration of a non-standard life experience mm-hmm. then it's going to take a lot more yeah, energy it's really to explain. important that you keep bringing up sort of explicability and complexity and simplicity because i think there's another factor in play here that you highlight in another one of your papers that to me is related to sort of the benefits of cheap talk for people who engage in it. So it's not just that like cheap talk can in the form of like question spamming can be harmful to certain individuals. It can also be, you know, a thing on which people build their, you know, grift or shtick or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think it, and this, this relates back to your, your question about the, the relation between this and pornography that I was saying earlier. You're certainly right that I think, um, Cheap talk is not exactly like porn in the way you've defined it in the sense that the porn produces a low risk for the consumer, whereas cheap talk produces a low risk for the actor themselves. Though I do think cheap talk provides a kind of porn for consumers as well because what they are consuming is a kind of skeptical LARPing where they pretend that they are engaged in rigorous skepticism without actually being involved in it. And this gets to this other idea that I want you to define, which is this concept you call value capture. I'm I'm sure other people talk about this as well, but can you explain sort of what value capture is and then how it sort of damages autonomy potentially? Right. Okay, let me let me go back. Before we go into value capture, I just want to talk a little bit about all the stuff you just okay. said before that cuz it's super <laughs> interesting. So I I'm re- I really like this idea of the of this like look, there's there're two cheapnesses. There's cheap mm-hmm. talk and cheap consumption. And they seem like they're parallel versions of this like somewhere behind there is lurking this picture of like look discourse is like costly at both ends and you you can be tempted Mm -hmm. to cheap out at both ends the one thing i'm worried about is i think you had this view that cheap talk also always leads to cheap consumption and i'm Mm. not always sure that's the case i think the kind of argument you're talking about may be cheap talk that also is leads to a kind of porn and that's Mm -hmm. one strategy of cheap talk but i i think that other cheap talk doesn't like i think a lot of the question spamming that i'm thinking about doesn't provide cheap pleasures for anybody it can just like be used to invoke the discourse norms and exhaust I mean, I'm not saying necessarily everybody is doing it for the lulls, but the fact that yeah. the phrase doing it for the lulls is a very well-known internet phrase would suggest right. that like there is a lot of pleasure that comes right. in all of the right. trolling behaviors in that way. Um, but I, I mean, I agree with you. There isn't, there isn't a necessary connection yeah, I there. Say- I just think that like, basically, you know, going back to the capitalist kind of metaphor, right in the marketplace, I, I think I described it in the paper as sort of like referencing the economic principle that bad money drives out good money, that in essentially in a marketplace environment, the spam floods the market and makes it very difficult to function as an actor in that marketplace. Exactly. I think we should say, though, I think we're kind of starting to talk as if everyone that's taking advantage of the discourse norms and spamming is doing mm-hmm. so knowingly and strategically. But I kind of suspect Absolutely, there are a lot of people sure. that aren't. That a lot of people have been raised with certain discourse norms, norms. And I mean, I bet you there are a lot of cases where people are advantaged by these discourse norms and haven't fully articulated why they're strategically good. They just know that like, oh, they tend to win fights. Mm-hmm. So that seems good. 
I mean, as analytic philosophers, we can understand that the, you know, like the tools that we wield can very easily be like. There was an article I remember that went around when I was an undergrad called "How to Survive a Philosopher Attack," which was like you were at a party and you didn't realize you were in a conversation with a philosopher, and then all of a sudden you were miserable and you didn't know why. It's because of a philosopher attack. And what you what I noticed is that like the philosopher attack has become modern trolling on the internet, basically. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I do think that in philosophy, a lot of us are raised with this idea of you should always ask questions, mm-hmm. you should always take them seriously. And someone pointed out, I was talking about this, I I, I exported our conversation over to Facebook, and someone, uh, Steve Hales, a philosopher, pointed out that like the discourse norms I'm talking about are like norms mm-hmm. for philosophy conferences, but maybe they're okay there because you can kind of assume that a lot of people have spent a lot of work to be there. And it's, there's something about like, again, it's like, it's like the emailing thing, right? The more costly it is to send a message, the less people will spam. But like, there's a big difference between like an in-person conference that has a registration fee and like Twitter. And one of the things you might think is there's like, just like the technology of email totally transforms the potential for spamming. Twitter totally transforms the potential for spamming just by yeah, and it's funny costs. because we could talk just about like how this actually plays out in philosophy conferences because again we're all familiar with the phrase this is yeah. more of a comment than a question which is like another form of like <laughs> the way that people can sort of toy with the norms for the sake of their own ends rather than the benefit of like the group yeah. but there is in those in those in those spaces a reputational cost if you're the guy who like gets up and does that over and over again you know people stop calling on you or like don't want to work with you or stuff like that you don't have any of that cost online or if you do like the you know whatever costs that some of the people who i would like to talk to you about that like i think are the purveyors of a lot of really damaging cheap talk online like whatever they lose in terms of the handful of people who get tired of their shtick they pick up in a lot of people who are new to this shtick and are really on board with whatever they're selling at that moment Exactly. You know something really interesting okay. in the background? Before I go to Valley Capture, which I really want to talk about, one thing that's in the background here is I think there was this dream a lot of us had. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I was around for the early days of the internet, and people, we were all like, oh my God, communication will be cost free. It's perfect. <laughs> it's democracy at its best. And we were like, this will save the world. And mm-hmm, then other mm-hmm. shit happened. And like, it makes me think, oh, yeah, you know, so people often are like, oh, my God, there are certain problems with X world because, like, there's gatekeepers mm-hmm. and costs for getting in. And there's definitely problems associated with that. But I think what we're learning is there are also characteristic problems mm-hmm. associated with cost freeness. And spamming is like we thought email would make com- communication perfect. And we didn't even like, you know, in the late 80s when this was starting to happen, like no one saw the fact that now I wait, like I wake up on Monday morning, I have to spend an hour clearing mm-hmm. spam out of my inbox, right? Like, like that. And so another way to put it is it's not, oh, we should go back to full gatekeeping, but we should expect that like heavily gatekept, <laughs> get, gatekept, gatekept, heavily gatekept, guarded, heavily guarded worlds with high cost for entry have characteristic mm-hmm. epistemic problems, but also cost-free communication systems have a different set of characteristic mm-hmm. problems. Yeah, I wrote, like I wrote an article about this recently having to do with a group called Monster Island that was, again, mm-hmm. the, the, the cost-free environment. And yeah, I think there's a lot of good data that's 
suggests that like functional discourse happens in heavily moderated environments and that's just like a reality and the cost of gatekeepers and like what what you need to do is just be sort of ever vigilant about who's watching the watchman rather than just doing away with watchman entirely um but okay you've avoided it long enough here explain value capture for me so we can get into a bit yeah Okay, value capture. So this is the idea that comes at the end of my book that now is like the obsession <laughs> of my life. So um, so the end of the games book, so most of the games book is about, oh, games are awesome, and the basic idea of the games book is games are the art of agency. Uh, what a game designer does is they create an a, a, a different agency for you to occupy, which consists of both mm-hmm. abilities and affordances, but also an end. A game designer tells you what to want in a game, whether you want to beat the opponent or cooperate to beat the pandemic or whatever. That, By the way, for people that don't know, that wasn't just a joke in bad taste. The greatest co-op game out there right now is a mm-hmm. cooperative board game called Pandemic where you play the CDC trying to stop a pandemic. Um, so... Uh, I want to play the Cthulhu version of that game so badly by the way. Yeah, go ahead. Please continue. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, so one of the ideas that comes out of this is that we have what I called agential fluidity. Someone can show us a scoring system and we can just go for it. Like that's an mm-hmm. ability we just have, right? You can just tell me, okay, in this game, you want to collect as many pairs of animals as possible. I'm like, <laughs> I'm in. That's what I want, right? Uh, it's so true. And, yeah. I, mean, this is, board, I know, board it's game, so bad. It's true, right? The game just tells you, you open it like it just spits shit at you and you're and it's like okay green tokens are bad red tokens are good you're like awesome fuck you tokens um, so i mean it's just basic the whole book by the way is about this is ba- how weird this basic fact is that like a lot of philosophy can't account for the basic fact that mm-hmm. we can just do this um anyway so so then i started so a lot of people out there think oh games are good so gamification is good so jane mcgonagall famously who's this gamification guru is like look she has this book called Reality is Broken. She's like, reality is really boring. We have this great mm-hmm. technology called games that makes mm-hmm. boring activity fun, like grinding. So let's just apply that to life. And what you get is Fitbit mm-hmm. and Strava and, like, mm-hmm. and I mean, Twitter, right? You get these carefully tuned gamifications that give you points and levels up in achievements for doing something. And so the, my point in the book was, okay, Jane McGonagall thinks games are good, so gamification is good. What I think is if you actually understand what's good about games, you should be shit mm-hmm. scared of gamification. And the reason is games work and they give you pleasure by narrowing, giving you artificially narrowed targets. Games feel so good because you get for a brief moment in time to live life knowing exactly what you're doing and exactly how success is counted. Criteria in games of the mm-hmm. time I'm talking about are explicit, typically mechanical, right? And so you can just see points. So to do that in life, you have to take an activity and then change the goal to something clear and simple and targetable. So Fitbit often changes, I think, the goal of running from more complex notions of mm-hmm. health, from um, like pleasure, aesthetic pleasure in the run, sensations of body, to just step counts. Or uh, Twitter. Uh, uh, so a paper of mine just came out. It's about. It's called how Twitter gamifies communication, and it's just about how we can have all these values for communication, but Twitter only measures mm-hmm. popularity, mm-hmm. likes, right, virality, uh, and to the extent that you're motivated by the scoring, then you're buying into that motivational system. So those mm-hmm. are explicit gamifications, and then I was starting to think like, oh no, there's this whole larger phenomenon of which gamifications are only a subtype and Mm -hmm. i'm calling that value capture and value capture is basically when you have like 
rich, subtle values of your own and you get put in a social setting, typically an institutional setting, that prevents simplified, typically quantified versions. And then those versions start to take over. Like mm -hmm. you start caring about that. So, for example, um, I liked the Fitbit so example, example actually, that you gave about the uh, people on the honeymoon. That was a or the, the vacation. Oh yeah, yeah. Th this is an example about like. So this is actually an example from a relative of mine where they said that they uh, were going on vacation and were meeting up with an old couple, a friend of theirs, and they were like planning all these, like it was in Rome and they were like planning all these like long walks and like visits to museums. And when they got there, the other couple just wouldn't do anything uh, uh, with them because they just had to like be making their step count. They'd be like, we can't go to this like opera. There's not enough walking there. Uh -huh. So we're going to go walking. Right. So like my point was like things like friendship or like aesthetic, whatever's aren't counted by a watch but steps are and so value capture often happens when this like really clear crisp metric or presentation of value swamps out some like less clear presentation of a value not because the less clear value is less important but just because like there's no like ranking system for how fun your conversation mm -hmm. was yeah over dinner. I, yeah i yeah, um I would, first of all, I want to say, of all the video games I've played, and I've played a lot of video games, Twitter continues to be by far the weirdest video game out there. It's In, in terms of its leveling model, like it is a very strange game. The power system is completely broken. It's unbalanced. It's such like it's genuinely one of the weirdest, and also, as you would say, like accurately most addictive games that I've played, besides like World of Warcraft, perhaps. Um, so, it, you know, that is certainly a weird place. So... Yeah, we have this we have this idea of value capture, and I wanted to attach this to this talk of uh, this this concept of cheap talk. And I'm curious if you see sort of cheap talk as connected to this idea, and if, as as sort of similarly damaging in ways with regard to autonomy. Yeah, I bet. I bet that I see a connection. I bet that I, the connection I see. Yeah, that's why I didn't want to just jump into my connection. So I was so curious first, if you see one different from my own. Yeah. Yeah. L let me go back. So you so you wanted me to talk about how value mm -hmm. capture damages autonomy, and I think to answer this question, I might sure. have to explain that. So, really briefly. By the way, this is now like a twenty thousand word paper that I have no idea what to do with. Really briefly, the basic idea is value capture damages autonomy because instead of figuring out your values for yourself and tailoring to them to your personality. Um, you're just ingesting them mm -hmm. wholesale from the world and not tailoring them. So uh, one of the mottos in the book is like, the two mottos in the book are value capture is outsourcing your own personal values. And the other motto is something like, your values should be tailored to you, but like value capture is like buying your values off the rack. And off the rack values, insofar as you don't change them or tailor mm -hmm. them, um, can't be sensitive to your own personality, your own life experience, your own particularity. And because of the setup of the technology, a lot of the times you can't tailor them, right? You can't screw with the way Fitbit counts things. A scholar can't screw with the way citation rates counts things. So if you care about that, then your values are just pegged to the system of valuation or criteria that are set by someone else for different reasons. Often the reasons they're set are that they fit easily into us. Right spreadsheet or easily quantifiable, by a cheap piece of right? technology. easily quantified right. etc so, yeah yeah right by the way i we should we should talk about the 
the commodifiability stuff later because I think a standard view is this stuff is mm -hmm. particularly a capitalist problem and I'm convinced that it's a problem of institutions, which would show up both in capitalism and in centralized I, communism I buy that. and socialism. I'm not, I'm not so saying that it doesn't like happen in other in places. I just think that what we see in our lives yeah. is that it's a capitalist-driven version of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's so important to figure out. Like, So a lot of my viewers is influenced mm -hmm. by James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, which I think weirdly combines both Marx's worries about capitalism and Hayek's worries about communism for this like grand <laughs> unified theory of like what's fucked up about large-scale institutions whether they be globalized capitalized markets or centralized mm -hmm. socialist economies <laughs> so anyway if you buy that argument then okay. you're just worried about institutions and you you can't expect the socialist revolution right, i'll stop poking at capitalism everything. we could just say institutions still be as, as written for now mm. yeah yeah no, but but i i do i do think like it's if you're on the left, it's so important to know which of the many harms of the world come from capitalism and mm -hmm. which come from institutions, because socialism will fix some of those, fair, but not fair. all of totally them. Totally fair. Anyway, sorry. Long, long side comment. Um, so, so value capture and cheap talk. What's, uh, what do you see as a connection? Oh, yeah. So in general, I keep seeing this connection um, in which uh, there's some rich target that guides an activity and then some way to game that target to glean the pleasures or like good mm -hmm. feelings off of it without pursuing the original value so this is related to this other, like i think this is true mm -hmm. in like echo chambers right uh, we're, it, it a lot of what happens in echo chambers is you have this like clean simple like view of the world and my worry is that you uh Adopt that view for the pleasure rather than for the sake of its yeah great truth yeah. right and and the worry again is like cheap so all the porn stuff is again like this like you're I mean the porn stuff is interesting because you're not actually mm -hmm. acting right so in some ways not all porn not the moral porn but some of the porn is the least worrying about the stuff because that's like not necessarily mm -hmm. tied to action but cheap talk insofar as it's in the public sphere is one where i think you're doing something for the thrills of victory or like put it out there but you're not in, you're not doing it at the full targets of i don't know engaging in discourse for the sake of communication or understanding or the mutual pursuit of truth you're doing it mm -hmm. for something thinner and easier and typically yeah, more that's great. So that, that that was the similar to the sort of connections that I was seeing here mm -hmm. in terms of the simplifying of the universe that's going on in value capture. What is usually the simplifying of the universe that goes on in cheap talk, because usually cheap talk is, you know, meant to be sort of, I think, appealing to people who are looking for that kind of simplification and is also done by people who generally aren't well-versed enough in the complexity to not sort of oversimplify things. So there's several factors in play there. Um, and, and then you tie in the echo chamber thing. And where I was seeing this a lot, especially on Twitter from some folks in the intellectual dark web area of the world, is the way that conspiracy theories are a kind of value capture cheap talk that goes on in these environments. So the examples I wanted, I was, you know, I had in mind, I talked about this some over on Philosophers in Space as well. And I do think what you're on to is exactly right, that what people in the conspiracy theory analysis world will say is one of the greatest driving forces is the pleasure of group 
storytelling of essentially a community coming together and playing a yeah. LARP game in this kind of way. Um, and so, oh yeah, you know. that's that's so mm-hmm. that's so interesting. Well, let me say something. So, the joys and community storytelling are right. So, let me let mm-hmm. me make a stretch. So, I think. One of the things that happens with a lot of conspiracy theorizing is, by the way, I, I just want to point out a point, a basic point that philosophers David Cody and uh, M. X. Dentith make, which is the mere fact that something is a conspiracy theory doesn't mean it's bad because some conspiracy theories are true because there are actual conspiracies in the world. Yeah, like, this, this is a very is, complicated thing. I've been talking about this, this on, a couple, like, on a couple of my shows recently, but yeah, it's it's a big problem. Yes. Yeah. 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 So. But the appeal of conspiracy theories is that it makes the world manageable mm-hmm. and clear. So there's what, so Richard Marius, who was one of my professors in undergrad, once made this amazing comment. We were reading Pynchon's Crying of Lot 49, and he said, like, there's a basic similarity between the love of mystery novels and a religious mindset, which is every tiny detail mm-hmm. suddenly makes sense at the end. Everything was there for a purpose. And like conspiracy theories, especially ones that span the world, like make everything make sense and give you the strong feeling that you can explain mm-hmm. things readily and easily. So uh, in in one of the papers when I was talking about conspiracy theories, I found some quotes from, from Flat Earth theorists and one someone asked them, some reporter asked them for like why they're into it. And a couple of them said, oh, I mean, you feel so empowered, like you can make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. super interesting, right? You're picking up this theory because it makes you feel powerful. And one thing you might think is an essential problem of the, of the modern scientific world in which most knowledge is held in specialists is every single one of us is powerless mm-hmm. about most forms of knowledge. We just have to accept most forms of knowledge, we don't get to participate in the making of most forms of knowledge. We don't get to have a say in it. It's just like it requires specialties out of our control. And that's like that. Mm-hmm. That feels fucked up. And if you're a, and a, one of the weird things, I mean, you know, we're trained philosophers, and philosophy works on this illusion of like intellectual autonomy. But science demands mm-hmm. that we not be intellectually autonomous. And the people that are like, if you look at it, I think the people that are addicted to intellectual autonomy are. Yep. The conspiracy theorists and right people that are like, well, I, I can give you this explanation of my own or like, just look around, you know, like, don't be a sheep. Yeah, that exactly. To the this is 100 percent right? the thing that I see um, that is, yeah, the, the driving energy, yeah. not just in the audience, but on the stage in these kinds of performances. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so, so and I tie this and, and like. I would say that the problem is exacerbated by the fact that conspiracy theories are also a kind of cheap talk where there's no cost to promoting them for a lot of these individuals. So there, there used to be some cost, right? If you were a known conspiracy yeah. theorist, you couldn't make it on certain platforms or something like that. But like with everything being so balkanized now, that's not enough of an issue, I think, that like, you know, so I, I saw, for example, um, Nawaz uh, was like, one that really made me angry was he was retweeting a video of like uh, what he claimed, you know, he was like retweeting from like Trump 
dot org dot you know nonsense garbage right and it was a video of someone supposedly stuffing ballots and his sort of response to it was you know we at least need to know what's going on here we need a full investigation like we need to like you know have this proven to not be blah 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 and all of that talk there's never going to be a, a like a part two there's never going to be he comes back around and acknowledges that the video like every other video was you know completely bunk from the start and it shouldn't have been given that space so like there's nothing you know, he he loses out in no way for doing that while he benefits by pulling in people who want to see that particular narrative. Yeah. I mean, okay, I think I have... Yeah. Do you want a grand unified theory? I think I have a grand unified theory. <laughs> Conspiracize. Okay, so I'm going to expand. So, yeah, no, this is not a, this is not a grand unified theory. This is not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> this is philosophy. That's right. When we do it, it's enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, I I actually there's other stuff okay. I'm writing. We should talk about this later. But I'm really starting to worry that the abstracting mm-hmm. tendency to philosophy comes sure. out of a similar appeal, and that kind of and it like refuses the difficulty of the localization of mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Yep, anyway totally. whatever. We can talk about that later. I'm I am starting to turn to worry about <laughs> what the fuck I'm doing. You're becoming post structuralist. Okay. <laughs> Let's do a grand unified theory. Let's do a grand unified theory about the appeal of grand unified theories. No, no. Okay. So here's a grand unified theory. So, um, so at the end of this new paper, uh, I don't think you've read this one. Uh, the, um, how Twitter Mm -hmm. gamifies communication. I start trying to figure out why Twitter moral outrage porn and echo chambers Mm -hmm. go so well together. And I, the proposal there is this. So all of them involve something I want to call inst- instrumentalization. So in all of them, you change your end not for the sake of what's valuable, but for the sake of pleasure mm-hmm. or some other like cheap good. So the idea is something like, look, so in the background, so with games, games allow you to instrumentalize ends. You change the goals in the game for the maximum pleasure during the game. And I think that's okay in games because they're games. They're separate from life. But in echo chambers, you start adopting beliefs not based on the evidence, but based on pleasure, a sense of community, a sense of the ability to explain things, Mm -hmm. the feelings of smugness. With moral outrage porn, you adopt moral views, not out of moral nuance, but because having them makes you feel smug or confident or something like that. And then gamification, like you start communicating on Twitter, uh, not for the sake of connection or understanding, but because you get this game-like thrill from Mm -hmm. chasing this thing up. And even though each of the targets is different, what unifies them is the willingness to shift the target away from a careful attention to what's valuable and try to like Mm -hmm. retune it for quick pleasure. Um, and my explanation there was something like, look, so these go together because if you're willing to give up on the careful attempt to get things right and true, then of course you're going to take up mm-hmm. all these cheap pleasures, right? So I think something similar is true of cheap – that's why cheap talk goes well with conspiracy theories, goes well with moral outrage porn. Because in cheap talk, you're engaged in talk not out of the mutual attempt to get an understanding together, but to get some like – Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. quick good whether it be like more likes or more followers or like something like that so they're they're united as 
all these things, using moral outrage porn, using cheap talk, promulgating conspiracy theories, are all the strategies that become available to you once you mm-hmm. stop caring yeah, about and I, I think it's important for us to reiterate at this moment, as we have repeatedly, that like I think you and I are both fairly sympathetic to people who are to people who are seduced by these kinds of conspiracy theories or cheap talk or that sort of thing, and that it is like it is a, a mechanism that exists in all of us. I mean, when you talk about the pleasure of having like clear goals and and like clear abilities to achieve those goals in video games, I know the exact like I literally, especially us, like in the the like slowly collapsing academic world, you know, like the idea of having a space where you have really clearly defined objectives and like a reasonable progression plan towards those objectives is like heroin right that's such a that's such a buzz right so i am totally sympathetic to these folks um and i also there is that sort of control and competence element that is very satisfying and rewarding in these environments and you talk about related to this what you were just saying this idea of like a kind of exaggerated sense of cognitive facility that tracks you know that that to me tracks a lot of what is going on in the literature around conspiracy theories and you did a, i think an interesting job in your value capture paper operationalizing i think it was a value capture operationalizing sort of the ways in which that exagger, exaggerated sense of cognition works can you sort of maybe describe a little bit of the functionality of that right yeah 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 um and then okay. we should go back to mm-hmm. the fault stuff because that's super interesting so um this is actually the seductions of clarity paper. I mean, they don't really. It's you should. They should all feel like a mission in your head because they're all like your, your basically book. different parts of a book. Like they, they, these, yeah, the, these papers can't be separated. So the idea is. So my, my idea in seductions of clarity was. So, the philosophy of science has this really interesting literature on the nature of understanding. So let's do a little bit of wonky technical philosophy. There's something interesting <laughs> at the end. So a standard view in epistemology is that the goal of our, our pursuit is knowledge. Knowledge is usually conceived of as true facts, right? Sure. Plus some justification. Plus some getting. Uh, whatever. Yeah, don't. We don't. <laughs> by the way, I, I had the joy of introducing <laughs> my spouse to get air, problem, get air problems and then telling her about stupid oh. barn country jokes. No, anyway, so um, we don't need to go down that. Whatever knowledge is, the interesting thing about it is the most conceptions treat knowledge as something – that you hold of individual facts. So the people in philosophy of science are like, but that's not what scientists are trying to do. They're trying to get something more. They're trying to get like a model or something, right? So there's this notion of understanding in the philosophy of science, which is something that we're supposed to pursue, which scientists, which philosophers of science think that scientists are pursuing. They think that what scientists want is not just knowledge of individual facts, mm-hmm. but an effective model that they can use to to do a lot of stuff with. So the marks of understanding rather than knowledge are not just knowing individual nodes, but seeing the mm-hmm. connections between the nodes and being able to use those nodes to make predictions and generate new explanations right. of new phenomenon, right? So um, so I was looking at this and I'd be like, okay, that. so the markers of understanding are possessing a model, being able to apply the model, uh, being able to connect the nodes, being able to mm-hmm. communicate your understanding. And I was like, it looks to me like conspiracy theories mm-hmm. are gaming that, right? That they're offering a system that like, gives you hyper easy, like a hyper easy like ability to explain everything, to communicate. Um, and so my worry was that it was like exaggerating mm-hmm. the feeling of clear understanding without the yeah. actual 
clear understanding itself. And like, what's in the background? Like, you can see like all these things have the similar character. Where okay, here's an analogy I've been thinking about a lot. Um, so okay. think about sugar. In the environment of evolutionary adaptedness, the heuristic "eat things that are sweet" was a fine heuristic for us, right? Because Right. There wasn't that much sweetness in the world. Most things, most things were sweet, had the kind of carbohydrates we needed. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we are we're kind of programmed to seek sweet and fault and sat. Sorry, sweet and salt and fat without a ceiling because that's a fine heuristic, and it tends to track foods that we should be eating in right. the pre-industrial environment. Let's say. But now we have companies that can finally target our sense of sweetness mm-hmm. and saltiness and fat separated from the rest of the, and they can exaggerate that. Um, and so now we're super vulnerable. And I mean, there's a sense in which we're giving in because we could resist, but there's, there's a sense in which exactly the way we've been programmed to, uh, to work, like the tiny gaps between our heuristics and what's actually mm-hmm. good, like companies can target. And that's what I feel like is going on with cheap clarity right? Like there's feelings associated with understanding and then there's real understanding. And then a conspiracy theory and stuff like that targets that gap and gives you something that's like engineered for extra tasty, delicious feeling of clarity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is, maybe this will stretch the analogy a lot, but I think it's easy to optimize for sweetness, sugar, fat, and like yumminess if you yeah. give up on nutrition. And it's easy to optimize for the feeling of understanding if yeah, you no, give up on that. This ties back to what I was saying about how sort of cheap talk conspiracy theories drive better thinking and better understanding out of the market. I mean, if you look at like food markets in America, right, the way that cheap, easily produced uh, junk food drives healthy food options out of marketplaces is sort of heavily, you know, heavily studied. So, yeah, I think there absolutely is a shared connection in all of these kinds of spaces where, you know, these environments are being sort of optimized for goals that are not actually the well-being of the individuals involved in those systems. And to bring this back to the thing of responsibility, since you wanted to come back to that, you know, I'm always on about issues of luck. And to me, people, I think, vastly underestimate how much their own belief structures are a matter of luck. And I'm curious, do you see, like, the the difference between you now and you ending up as a conspiracy theorist? Do you see it as anything more than just luck of which sugar you got fed at which points in time? (laughs) So... I have a story in which certain people raised in certain environments can arrive at conspiracy mm-hmm. theories through no fault. Like if you're raised in a cult and you have no exposure to anything else. On the other hand, what it looks like to me if someone like is educated kind of normally and enters into a conspiracy theory is that in some sense, like there's a way to describe it, which is very individual fault. Like they gave up on the truth and mm-hmm. took easy pleasure, like the lazy cowards. And there's another way to describe it that's like, no, the, the structures have finally targeted our heuristics and weaknesses and hi- finally engineered hyper-addictive, hyper-tasty, mm-hmm. like intellectual treats. So I don't know where exactly to put... To me, it seems indistinguishable from the discussion around drug addiction, for example. Like, it just seems like you're describing a mental drug that is legal and readily available for everyone in the world. And, like, that's why I'm not surprised that, like, the vast majority of human beings believe at least one conspiracy theory. You know, I was at a conference on trust, and Anara O'Neill, who's one of my Mm -hmm. favorite philosophers on trust, 
she gave this talk and she started she's amazing and she gave this talk and she was like yeah all these people uh talk about you know the way to stop misinformation and fake news as like giving people better media discrimination abilities as if pe- what's what's like wrong is people's mm-hmm. lack of media discrimination abilities. she said i think that's just mm-hmm. blaming the victim <laughs> and i was like wow that's really interesting because i think her view is that like look most people don't have the ability to discriminate between better and worse news outlets right like and now, of course, we're plunged back into this autonomy, freedom, paternalism, it's where I whatever, live all the time. But stew. I mean, like you, you know, you mentioned cults. I yeah. personally, at this point, don't think that conspiracy theories are actually separable from cults. I think they're a subset of cults. I'm curious if you, you know, like when when we define mm-hmm. cult properly as like you know the information isolating kinds of cults that you see. Um, you know, I'm curious. Do you see really mm-hmm. any sort of daylight between like? QAnon and any other kind of cult? I think some there are cults that at their center have consp- have conspiracy theories, but I think you can have a con- you can entertain a conspiracy theory without being in a cult. So the the notion of cult that I work with in the echo chamber stuff is it's something that makes you distrust mm-hmm. everybody on the outside. And I think there are plenty of consp- there are many conspiracy theories that aren't so exclusive you can have conspiracy you can have specific here's an example um here's a conspiracy theory that might be true i've entertained it sometimes so there's some evidence that the coca-cola company when they made so when they made new coke Mm -hmm. new coke was a bad formula right so people really didn't like new coke but one thing that um someone pointed out to me was that Mm, uh i've heard this before new coke yeah, Coca-Cola was made uh-huh. with cane sugar, and afterwards, it was uh, yeah. it was high fructose corn syrup, and the new Coke debacle was long enough for people to forget the taste. And so some people are like, "Oh, this is an engineered debacle." So here's a conspiracy theory, maybe true, maybe not. We may be too tempted to believe it, but it doesn't have like that. Believing that doesn't necessarily put you in a cult, because it doesn't cut you off from the general world. Mm-hmm. I think possibly because it's really specific. The conspiracy theories that we're wor- really worried about that are cult-like are the ones that start to be like everybody is in on it except us. Right. The chosen yeah. Ones. So there. So this is actually something that I was talking about on one of my other shows about conspiracy theories. The way that the different one of the main differences that people who study this have found they think between what we think of as a bad conspiracy theory versus just a theory about an actual conspiracy is that theories about actual conspiracies yeah. tend to explain a specific single discrete event like Bridgegate or something, whereas yeah. Conspiracy theories tend to be these giant grand narratives that explain a million different kinds of things. Now, right. I guess what I would say, I, I'll, I'll tweak what I was saying a little bit there, I think, because I think you make a good point. I think conspiracy theories, depending on the severity of the conspiracy theory, the more severe they get, the more they become indistinguishable from cults. So there are yeah. very mild kinds. And the reason being is that right. the conspiracy theories, I think, all involve a they – this is something that I think is very central that that explains right. away conflicting pieces of information and makes for you know a closed epistemic ecosystem, right? And it's if the they yeah. gets bigger than the Coca Cola company, right? If it becomes you know the Jews as it usually does, yeah. right? Like then it it yeah. slides I think towards cultism because that they can then justify any other kinds of right. beliefs. Yeah, yeah. There are two mm-hmm. things that are connected here. One thing I think is that. I think if you adopt the attitude, 
And anyone that doesn't share this conspiracy theory mm-hmm. is an idiot or a sheep. Then you're a big step towards a cult. And another is believing in some kind of like mysterious they that's controlling a lot of stuff. Although, I mean, I still think that it's possible to hold things that are conspiracy theories uh, while being open to evidence mm-hmm. to change. I think the thing the you have to distinguish between the content of believing in a large conspiracy versus um, the men- the mindset of wanting to be dismissive about anything that isn't right. Like you can hold, I mean, I think there are a lot of beliefs that probably you and I have that start to look like they have the content mm-hmm. of conspiracy theories. Like for example, um, if you read the book Dark Money, mm-hmm. which is about the Koch brothers and the Koch brothers' large-scale like um, attempts to influence stories about – I mean their large-scale attempt to exert political influence for profit. Mm-hmm. like Yeah. That has the content of a conspiracy yeah, theory. Yeah, no, I wrestle right? with this too for sure. Because I think some of us actually believe right. there was a conspiracy there, right? But there's, there's, there's – I think you have to distinguish between what people call the conspiratorial mindset – from like really wanting things to be a massive conspiracy theory mm-hmm. versus like being open to the evidence of conspiracies when they happen. And I think we have to be super yes, careful. Yes, though that. I do think there's a psychological, there's an ease where you can psychologically slide from one to the other. And so, like, it's sort of, it's, to me, it's sort of like right. an immune system where if something gets in and compromises it, it is then more susceptible to sliding in those other kinds of directions. Yeah. But I think you're also right that, like, there are probably the probably the majority of people in the world hold one or two like benign tumor versions of a conspiracy theory that like isn't mm-hmm. causing them to epistemically collapse entirely. Um, so I know we're getting just a little short on time. You have mentioned a couple of theories that you have been sympathetic to. I'm curious if there's anything that like you would put in the conspiracy theory in a problematic way kind of camp, but you have been ever sort of tempted by. Yeah, I mean. I think I, and this is actually what uh, I mean, I think you and I who are both on the progressive left, uh, I think both of us there are reasonable beliefs to have about capitalism that are evidence based, and then I think there's a nearby conspiratorial version, and this is actually one of the reasons why I'm like why I personally as someone who is tempted to the view that capitalism is behind everything i'm like trying mm-hmm. to fight against that tendency sure, by trying being critical to, like, of your own assumptions you know I see. look at the ca- yeah yeah uh and they like eh, right we've we also have a lot of in- mm-hmm. information right right the stuff we talked about before so that's i mean but it's also my own belief there is that mm-hmm. i think my beliefs about large-scale capitalism are like they flirt with things that are conspiracy theory-ish. Like it's easy to generate an all-encompassing explanation. And so you have to like mm-hmm. fight a little bit to keep – if you believe there's an actual conspiracy at some level, you have to fight to remain mm-hmm. evidence-driven rather than like messianic mm-hmm. Yeah, this gets really tricky because I'm like – 
you know, when you talk about resisting the seduction of clarity, which I think is very important, it really does feel like a Scylla and Charybdis kind of situation to me where right on the other side is the yep. seduction of ignorance and like the pleasure that comes in the getting yep. to say, I don't know. And you don't know. And, and like the peace of mind that nobody really right. knows. Um, and I'm curious, like, is it, do you feel like it's just a yep. lifelong process of sort of balancing and desperately trying to avoid <laughs> believing false things? Yeah. I mean, I, it's almost like the thing you're just going to describe. I almost want to call it like mm-hmm. skeptic bros, but the word skeptic means something else. But I do think there's something like it's like mm-hmm. cynic bros or something like that, right? There's a certain stance you can have like, oh, it's impossible to know anything. You can't settle anything. Um, and then you opt out and you like feel above. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is important. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. You feel above. Oh, you everyone. believe in and knowledge think, from a system. So ha, said, you noob. <laughs> <laughs> right ha yeah you noob you think it's right. possible to know anything uh, we already know I, I've, I've totally uh failed my uh, my hero he- Skep- sextus empiricus and all of the peronian skeptics that's uh, terrible <laughs> one of the suggestions i made at the very end of the sections of clarity paper is what mm-hmm. can we do about it i mean we can be vigilant but also there's like since we're since a lot of what we're worried about is not just any kind of source of easy sugar, but like particular engineered ones, you can kind of I think start to develop a feel for it. And what I mean is, I mean, one of the ways I wean myself from way too much junk food is starting to implant in myself and build like, and foster like a suspicion of things that were just a little too yummy. You know what I mean? Like he's like, mm, this is just crunchy and so yum and i'm like uh, i think someone made that for me to be addicted to and i think there's a cognitive equivalent like oh that explanation is just a little too tasty that just is mm-hmm. and to be like i think you can cultivate a suspicion of like excessive intellectual comfort and that applies both to i can explain everything and oh you mm-hmm. think you can know mm-hmm. things noob both of those are easy routes to like. A yeah, I think absolutely right. I think that that was the last question I wanted to ask was um, sort of what things are effective. And I do agree that I think you can you can to some extent. It's always going to be fallible, but like develop a taste for the high fructose corn syrup of the mind in this kind of way, and learn to stick to like Coke Mexicali yeah. if you're going to have a exactly. have a soda. Um, so <laughs> I think you've you've nailed it there at the end, um, which I guess leaves just torturing you. Uh, so here we are. This is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So for folks who are not familiar, including you, since you weren't, uh, last time you were on, we didn't have this yet. I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are those things real or not real? You do not get to define what the word real means. You do not get to hedge. There is no middle ground here. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. Okay, let's find out. First of all, is anything real? Yes. Okay, let's figure out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes. Okay. Colors? Yes. Phenomenal consciousness? Yes. Free will? Yeah. Selves or persons? Yes. Genders? Yes. Uh, slowing down a bit there race yeah i mean now we're gonna have to you know i'm quietly deciding which of the definitions of real to use here yeah you can switch back and forth it doesn't matter race (laughs) uh race uh not real species 
Uh, oh man, if I if the base I answer nope, real nope, and gender, nope. I have to say it for race too. Um, no, I'm gonna say yes for race. I, I have a pretty no- loose notion of real. What's next? Species. Species. Yeah. Okay. Morality. Yes. Okay. Rights. Yes, I'm. I'm. I want to put an asterisk on. No, no, there are no asterisks to be no had asterisk. here. No asterisk. Okay. Just, yes. just complaining and sadness. Uh, knowledge. Yeah. Okay. God or gods? No. Mm, society. Yes. Money. Yes. <laughs> Still there. Uh, numbers. Yeah. Fictional characters. No. Holes, like a hole in the ground. <laughs> yes. Chairs. Yes. Sandwiches. Yes. Science. Yes. Natural laws. Um... Yeah. <laughs> uh, beauty. Yes. Love? Yes. Causality? Yes. And finally, time? Yes. Okay. Very permissive in your ontology, I see there. Yeah. I mean, I have. Uh, the asterisk is that uh, <laughs> I think that artifacts, artifacts and social constructs are real, they're just socially derived. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's understandable. These um, artifacts. How do you feel? Are you uh do you enjoy your experience? My 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 lightning round? Your trip that to the fun. lightning round? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a little difficult because I'm literally on a side project working about working on like constructed objectivities in aesthetics and so like mm-hmm. in my so, mind are like 15 possible notions of real, so, you know. So it doesn't Pick really one. matter. Yeah, right, for sure. Uh, well, this has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your work? Yes. Uh, my website is objectionable.net, where you can find links to everything. I'm on Twitter at ad hoc. Uh, that's A-D-D underscore H-A-W-K. And most importantly at all, of all, if if you love me, if you're excited about any of this stuff, uh, my new book, Games Agency is Art, is just out from OUP. It's on Amazon. You can buy it. It's seven years of my life compressed into a $35 object. Yep, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. And as always, CT, we have a million things that we didn't get to talk about. And I wanna, I'm want i going to have you back on again at some point, but I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay. It was awesome being on. Always a pleasure. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, 
and our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top-tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, and our newest top patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod, and if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you. Thank <music> you.